Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that page and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness and get access to a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. From that page on the website, you can also download the worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over and over again absolutely free. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one where people have been stepped through the worksheet process. And if you choose to listen to those, they can serve as a tutorial to help you get the most benefit out of these tools in the shortest period of time. And we hope you do that soon and often because, primarily because the more people use these tools in their life, the better their quality of life and relationships become. And secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate it if you would do just that. 
because that makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. How do you do that? You give us a call at 563-999-3581. And once you've called that number, press 1 on your phone. That'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I can turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. So let us know. How can we support you? What would be of service to you? What would be the the response you have to something we've been doing, whether that's the work we're reading from Christian Sundberg's book titled A Walk in the Physical or any of the other books we've read or things we've talked about in the past 12-plus years. We had our support group last night, and there was quite a bit of discussion about, once again, one of the uh, more difficult concepts for people who were raised in a Western mindset, And that concept that so many people have great difficulty with is the concept that all events are neutral. And um, somebody had just had a life experience that left them As a, their belief was that as a result of the life experience, they were feeling lots and lots of intense emotion. They were feeling anger. And they kept saying, I don't know, I can't see how my anger is not being caused by this event that just happened. And this event just happened, and I have all this anger, and everything about my experience tells me that this event is causing my anger. And I can't see it any other way. And it was very fresh, and the anger was up, and they just kept repeating it. I can't see that my anger is caused by anything other than this event, which just happened. Perhaps you've been in a similar situation. Perhaps you've had an event in your life that soon after the event occurred left you feeling anger, fear, sadness, hurt, upset of some kind. And and of course, if you just keep churning with whatever has been taught to you from the Western mind and your family and your culture, you really won't be able to break out of it and see anything different. 
But again, that's a big part of why we do the work we do, because it lets us, um, in each and every worksheet process, it instructs me to cancel everything that I'm already thinking and everything my mind is telling me, this is what I need and this is what I want, and leave a space for something else to show up. I didn't do any, I didn't make any efforts to try and talk this person out of this when this occurred last night. I, um, I let the group go on for quite a while. People talked about various things. And eventually they came back and asked me to address this one more time. How can you say that I'm not angry? Because of this event that just happened. It's a real event and it did just happen, et cetera, et cetera. I tried to talk about it from the perspective of just watch how your options open up. If you shift from saying, I cannot see anything except that this event is causing my response, how do your options open up if you start saying, I am generating a lot of anger in response to this situation? I wonder if I can see how I'm generating all of that anger. It's about this at great length. Michael Rice calls it the human mind an evidentiary device. And if I say to my mind, show me proof that this person or this situation is causing my anger, then this constellation of factors in the brain that some have labeled the reticular activating system kicks in to high gear and starts to show us only those pieces of the actuality of life and perhaps even some active hallucinations, some active distortions of actuality that add up to proof in our mind that we're right and that person or situation is causing our anger or our upset or our grief or our confusion or our hurt. It's a process that's been, as I said, been labeled the reticular activating system that you can understand that it benefits I am out with friends and we're living in the wild and we're trying to survive and one of the friends says, oh, look at these wonderful berries and they taste sweet and they're red and they're juicy and and minutes after eating one, her throat starts to choke up or, and her clothes up and, and she gets violently ill. Well, going forward, I will have made 
because I care about this person and I see that she's sick, I will have made the conclusion in my mind that that particular berry is poisonous and caused all this negative reaction in my friend. And I will be on the lookout for that berry and stay away from it, and I might stay away from five or six other berries that are edible and good for me, but if they're even close in color or shape or location to this other berry, I won't I won't take part in them. I will be on the lookout for anything that might be similar. And that can be protective for me. So the reticular activating system is the same kind of thing that makes me start noticing um, Honda Civics more often as soon as I take possession of a Honda Civic and I start driving one. Or if I decide I'm going to start riding motorcycles or I've got family member that I love who decides to buy a motorcycle and start riding a motorcycle and now I see them everywhere I go I see them I and it's not that I never saw them before but it is that my mind did not show them to me as often Michael Rice likes to cite the research where they put electrodes or or um they did actual brain scans of cats and they would you know ring the bell and present the cheese and now every time there's cheese in front of the cat the you know food that it would like the certain part of the brain lights up and then they ring a bell when that happens and now that part of the cat's brain lights up when it hears the bell and it's a very predictable thing. And then, after that's been trained into the cat's response and they can see it register in the brain, they can see the part of the brain light up that lights up every time the cat sees the cheese and or hears the bell, then what they do is they put a mouse in the view of the cat and they ring the bell and light the, uh, and present the cheese and ring the bell and that part of the cat's brain doesn't even light up. Now, we know that the cat's ears are still taking in the vibration of the bell. We know that, but it's not even registering in that part of the cat's brain because the cat's focus, the cat's reticular activating system, is so devotedly focused, narrowly focused on the side of the mouse. Well, that's the same kind of thing that happens if I keep saying to myself, I cannot see how this event is not causing my anger. All I can see is this thing happened, it's really happened, it's a real event in my life, and it means this, this, and this is going to happen going forward, and I'm so angry about it, and that's why I'm angry. And I literally train my mind to see things from that very simple, very narrow view. But I can open things up if I'm willing. I can say instead, 
I'm generating a lot of anger in response to this situation. Let me take a look at how I'm either focused on the past and regret or I'm focused on the future and fear and resentment. And one of the things that came to me last night was there's a book by Anthony DeMello and one of the stories in his book is about a woman, she was a nun, and she was at one of his weekend seminars and he was a Jesuit priest. And um, she came in and she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm really upset because the Mother Superior hasn't visited my convent that I run in, you know, two years or whatever, two and a half years. And uh, I, I, I think it's terrible. I think it's, you know, she doesn't like me and she's disrespecting me by not visiting, etc. And... Anthony said, well, I don't usually do this, but I have knowledge of that Mother Superior. I know her. She's a good friend of mine. And let me tell you, I can tell you for absolute certain that the reason she hasn't visited the convent that you run is because she knows you're doing such a wonderful job that it's going to run smoothly if, if she never shows up there. And she has so many other situations to handle that are a mess where people aren't doing anywhere near as good a job as you and the real reason she's not visiting is because you're basically running it so well and he said so after i tell you that how do you feel now and the nun said oh my gosh i feel i'm i feel fabulous thank you so much i i can't thank you enough for taking this weight off of me and he says, all right, you're very welcome. I don't normally do that kind of thing, but in this case, since you asked, I have that knowledge and I shared it with you. He says, now, why don't you, and he gives her a job to do that's outside of the room with the other participants, out of earshot. So she dutifully goes off, happily, to go off and, and do something for him. And he turns to the rest of the participants there and says, now, here's the real truth. I know that Mother Superior, and she said, I can't go visit that convent until I've got six months to a year to devote exclusively to that to straighten out the mess that this nun has made. She's absolutely horrible at what she does, and it's going to take me at least six months, if not a year, of me being there hands-on to turn that place around. And I have to get everything else in order before I do that. That's why I can't go there yet. And everybody in the room says, oh. And he says, now, don't share that with her. No need to upset her. And so then she comes back in the room after finishing her little errand. And he says, okay, so how are you feeling? How are you feeling now? And she goes, I feel great. I still feel wonderful. Thank you so much. What's the point of that story? The fact that the mother superior has been away or not come to visit for X amount of time has nothing to do with the upset the nun creates in her life or the relief she creates. The truth of the situation is irrelevant to the upset or calm or joy or bliss that that person creates in his or her life. So it's the same with every one of us all day, every day. The outside event is neutral 
until we throw a label on it. It's our thoughts that are not neutral. It's our thoughts that create our upset. It's our pouring our mind energy into our thought pattern that creates our experience of life in each moment. So I said to this person in the group last night, let's take a look at how you're feeling right now. Well, I'm just so angry because this and because that and because that and because that. And I said, now, let's just imagine, let's take what happened, this person that came to your house and did this work, and they were incompetent. So what if you find out tomorrow that this person was so incompetent that they actually reported to you that they did something negative that they never really did? And she couldn't let go of it. She said, but they did, and I know that. And I said, all right, okay, so let's take a look at it this way. Here's an event that's happened in the past, even though it was just hours ago. It's in the past. You can't go back and change it. You can't do anything about it. And you're looking at that, but you're in your house. It's climate controlled. Your health is still intact. Your family is still healthy. And you are, instead of being in the moment and enjoying the truth of your life, and having gratitude for life itself and the breath of life in you and your, all of the skills and abilities you have to deal with whatever comes along in life, you're focusing on this thing of the past and generating resentment and upset and anger. Or you're projecting on into the future. You know what this means? When the season progresses, the mistake this person made is going to mean I'm going to have to do this or I'm going to have to do that or this bad thing's going to happen. They haven't happened yet. Nothing bad has happened in this series of things that you're predicting will happen. It hasn't happened yet. And as you sit here and pour your mind energy into thoughts about this is going to happen and then that's going to happen and then bad, that bad thing's going to happen, you generate this upset. And you don't even let in the potential to start thinking about with calm, with so here's hoping I'm back on, and um, I'm just going to test. Magda, can you verify that we're back on? Yes. Oh, Hello, oh, Magda. Yes. Yeah. You can hear me again. Okay. I can hear I, you. Again. I apologize. <laughs> apologize for interrupting whatever you were doing. I just wanted to make sure that when I got dumped off, they let yeah. me back on. They did indeed. Right, you, you are. At least I can hear you. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. All right, great. I'll mute you again. All right. So um, the idea is if I sit here and focus on what's happened in the past or what I think is going to be bad about the future, I generate the upset. I narrow my focus. I can't even be calm and have my highest and best assessment of life to start planning how can I make adjustments to best live through whatever disruption is going to happen because of what is happening in, in my life right now? And that's all we're advocating here is for all of us in our day-to-day -day life experience to just try it on and see what happens 
when instead of arguing for our right to be upset and blaming that upset on someone or something outside of us, what happens if we choose, actively choose, to stay in the present moment to generate gratitude for our life as it is, view of life and the world wide open, and to keep our highest and best judgment and assessment and resources easily accessible as we decide how to best respond to life as it's unfolding. And it's through that process that we can, if we so choose, treat every external event as though it is a neutral event. And we can observe directly how we are literally creating our response, our experience of, and our reaction to every event that happens. That the events as they unfold are neutral and that our experience of them is self-created by how we choose to interpret and respond to those events and where we pour our mind energy moment to moment. And I can't speak for everybody else in the group, but when these events happen and people are willing to talk openly about what they're they've been conditioned to do in response to them and what their mind energy, their thoughts is producing, it is instructional for all of us. It is highly beneficial for all of us to observe directly in the moment what is it we're doing that creates our experience of life. And it may be mind-bogglingly different than everything we've been taught and trained to do since we were first given a knowledge about language and first trained to think about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. It may be very different from that. My experience has been it's also very liberating. Yes, I may go through a period of disorientation or adjustment or fear because it seems awkward and um, difficult to break the old habit of thought and and experience. And yet, the more I do it, the easier it gets, the more it builds momentum, the more it becomes a practiced skill that I engage more readily and more quickly and easily. So that's the kind of thing that happens in our support group. That's the kind of um, benefit that we take from it. And that was my offering for today, that um, once again we were asked to try and explain, to try to uh, put words to how in heaven's name can you say all events are neutral in light of the fact that this thing just happened 
and I am so angry. Immediately after finding this out, I'm angry. And so my mind is telling me, this event caused my anger. One of the other aspects of that, of this work and, and the talk last night was that I talked about how what many of us do without realizing it is we we misinterpret something that has a correlation, something that happens uh, in close proximity to something else, and we misinterpret that to mean that there's a cause and effect relationship simply because things these two things happened um, in close proximity to each other when many times when we as humans make that assumption it's not the case that there is a cause and effect relationship we've simply mistaken something that happens and it might be correlated, right? There might be um, several other factors that are related to the thing we're observing and perhaps causing both of the things we're observing, but neither of the things we're observing is causing the other one. Right, the example I use is the the image that came to me of somebody who's for whatever reason, maybe they come from another planet where there's no atmosphere and they're in our house in a protective suit to protect them from our poisonous atmosphere it would be poisonous to them. And every time they're in our living room, they look out upon the garden and they see everything is calm. And then after a while, the tree branches at the far end of the garden start to move and soon after the wind chimes that we have by the house start to sound and our visitor from another planet is just mesmerized by the beautiful sound of the wind chimes because they don't have sound the same way on their planet because there's no atmosphere. So when we finally get the battery pack that lets us take this person outside to tour the, the grounds, they go running to the far end of the garden and they shake the tree and then turn and look at the house. And we ask them, what are you doing? And they say, I'm trying to ring the chimes. And we say, what do you mean? And they say, well, when the trees move, that makes the chimes move. And it's simply their observation and they've mistaken co-relationship for cause and effect. Another one that Michael Rice used to use, he'd say, um, let's say we take somebody who was raised in the jungles with no knowledge about electronics or mechanics or anything like that, but they're an expert observer because they've been raised in the jungle where you have to watch out for poisonous plants and animals and things like that and the weather and always be on guard. So they're an expert observer, and we bring them into Chicago by one of the drawbridges in downtown Chicago, and we ask them to sit there and observe the bridge and help us figure out what makes bridges go up. Well, as they sit there, after a while, a boat comes along. Not long after the boat arrives, the bridge goes up, and the boat moves through the under the bridge, and then the bridge goes down. And after this cycle has repeated, 
10 or 15 times, our observer calls us over and says, I've got it. I know what makes bridges go up. And we say, okay, what is it? And they say, boats. Boats make bridges go up. Now, this is, uh, when Michael tells this story, he calls the boat a trigger and not the cause. You know, um, when I tell a story, I say, this is just something that's correlated with the bridge going up. It's not causing the bridge to go up. Because if the boat comes and there's nobody in the bridge house to observe that the boat is there, to, you know, observe the people on the sidewalk and, and the roadway and make sure that they're clear and sound the alarm and put the gates down and then when everything is clear flip a switch that sends power to a motor that sends you know torque to a set of gears and counterbalances that then this huge mechanism inside the bridge lifts the bridge but if there's nobody there or if the power is cut off or whatever the boat is not a trigger for that happening the boat is its presence is correlated with the bridge going up if all of these other factors are in place. And so our observer has mistaken something that is correlated with the bridge going up as a cause of the bridge going up. And then Michael tells the story with the, the word trigger as opposed to correlation. And he tells the story and he says, so now let's suppose that we go to this person, that's our, our expert observer, and we tell them, we would like to give you and everybody in your village everything you need to live for the next year absolutely free if you can just help us keep the bridge from going up ever again. So based on the cause and effect relationship, the conclusion that that person has assembled, as faulty as it is, but based on that conclusion, what will that person have to do to keep the bridge from going up? And Michael says, potentially change the direction of every boat in the Chicagoland area for the rest of his or her life to keep the bridge from going up. And then Michael says, if, if what we're talking about is uh, what we're observing is accurate that means nothing outside of you is ever causing your emotions there's a dynamic inside of you that causes your emotions and then michael says have you ever gotten tired of trying to change the behavior of everyone around you so that you don't have to have a negative emotion so It's difficult, it's impossible if people are not willing to open their minds and observe things differently because whatever I've been trained to believe is what I will believe until, unless or until, I am willing to let other data points in, other possible conclusions in. There was some research that was done uh, a good number of years ago now about what is the, the likelihood that someone will uh, let in or, or accept new scientific 
research, new knowledge from science. And it isn't about how much validity there is in the research or how well the study was designed or how many other people believe it. The factor that was most highly correlated with people accepting something new from science, from research, was this one thing. How close or far away is this new set of conclusions from what the person already believes? If it's relatively close to what they already believe, it's just a little bit of a shift in perspective, they are much more likely to let it in and to acknowledge the validity of the research. If it is a big leap from what they've already believed and what they've been taught and what their friends and family believe, they're much, much less likely to admit, to allow, to accept what truth is being presented. So the truth of life has very little to do with our perception because our perception is so active that I, you know in different people who study perception say that 80% of the information that goes into the pictures my mind shows me moment to moment comes from my past not from the sights and sounds that are hitting my senses in that moment so we are making our best guess Neil Seth in his video says, we are hallucinating our best guess about what's actually happening in life moment to moment. So unless and until I am willing to use the processes in me that generate my emotional response and my perception, if um, until and unless I'm willing to use them differently, I will continue to see what I've always seen, to believe what I've always believed, and to act in the way I've always acted. And yet, for each and every one of us, as soon as we're willing to put all of that aside and look with fresh eyes, look with what you know has been called a new mind, metanoia, a new mind, from a higher perspective, knowing from a higher perspective. And of course, it's it's the very process that's built into the seven-step worksheet process with I cancel my need to be right, I cancel my goal for this particular set of circumstances, and I ask to be shown something else. It's what Michael Rice found in the Kaburis manuscript where the word that has been translated as forgiveness in Aramaic, that word is shebag, it means to cancel and dismantle. And it's what Michael Rice found in The Course in Miracles where it says, open a curtain in your practice. Let go of what you think you want, your trifling treasures put away, and leave a clean and open space for the Christ mind to come. The Christ mind in this sense would be the metanoia, a new perspective, a whole new wave of perception. We have 
choice. We have the ability to hold on to what we already believe. We have the ability to block out the truth of life and create our own image. Is this Magda? Yes, it is. Hi again. Hello? Um, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. And I'm coming through? Okay, good. Yes. Um, yeah, I just wanted to do a little uh, real-life testimonial to uh, illustrate what you've been saying about correlation rather than cause. And I remember probably 10 years ago that I was dealing with this very issue. Um, and, I, and I really thought that I understood the work and accepting responsibility for my own feelings and the idea of the trigger. And I had been doing... Uh, the forgiveness work and doing worksheets for a couple of years already, I think, at that point. And I just totally got stuck because, and I, I guess I talked to Michael Rice about it, and and um, it was a situation where in this worksheet I was not able to resolve my upset with someone who had said something to me that made me angry. And I just couldn't get how that followed because I kept saying, yeah, but if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have felt this. I didn't feel this before he said that. And it it was just amazing that I was stuck in that place. Um, I didn't realize, well, he he pushed the button or he uh, pushed, pulled the trigger, whatever you want to call it, that that's all he did, that the upset that I was feeling was already in me, and this was just something that came along at the right time and disturbed or um, accelerated the feelings that I had. And that was after I had been doing the work for a while, so it takes time. At least it took me time to finally get it, that it's all an inside job, and whatever happened outside of me, whoever said what did what or didn't do something, that, that was just, you know, as I, I like to use the term trigger. Um, anyhow, well, I just and, wanted and, to... And, the, and the, idea, the idea of it is that <laughs> you won't have a negative response unless you pour mind energy into the thoughts, this is bad or wrong, he shouldn't have said this, or he shouldn't have done this. Oh, wow. Right. Even, and even, though he did, even though he did that very thing, you could choose a response that says, it's okay, you know, he didn't mean it, or wow, that was a mess up on his part, so it's probably going to screw up his life in certain ways. I feel compassion for him. If you poured your mind energy into any of those thoughts, you wouldn't be generating the upset. Yes, and this, I'm this is the critical thing: is to help people understand we are not mm-hmm. living in denial. We're not pretending that this thing didn't happen. We're just right. opening to the realization 
that we are creating our experience of it by how we label it and choose to respond. Exactly, and, and choose how to see it, because my viewpoint was that he was the, the thing that triggered, and that meant he caused my upset, yep. which, of course, is not true. What really caused it is that I had a different idea about how he should speak. And so I had a goal for him that he was not fulfilling for me. Um, exactly. I didn't really understand all that at the time. But, yeah, uh, it's how we choose to look at it and what we choose to do with our own energy is, is really about the, the responsibility part, taking responsibility. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to bring that up because it surprised me when I was that stuck in that place and, and I really thought I understood the concepts. Intellectually, I think I did understand the concepts. Emotionally, I hadn't Not so much, yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and, right. and there's there's wonderful research that's done by a psychologist. I forget his last name, but his first name is Dan out of Harvard. He's been studying happiness and our misperceptions about happiness. He's got a number mm-hmm. of different YouTube um, lectures from um, you know TED talks, etc. And in one mm-hmm. of them, he says right in the beginning of the lecture, he says. Raise your hands if you think you would rather win multiple millions of dollars in the lottery rather than become paraplegic. And, of course, every hand in the audience goes up because, you know, this is a lecture about happiness and what causes happiness, and they're all thinking, it would make me so happy to win multiple millions of dollars in the lottery, and it would make me miserable to become paraplegic, to lose the use of two of my limbs. And Mm -hmm. so every hand in the audience goes up and he says, okay, you're all wrong. It was a trick question. And he says, these two populations of people, people who've won multiple millions of dollars in the lottery and people who've become paraplegic, are two populations of people that we as scientists and psychologists and sociologists, we have a tremendous amount of data on these two groups. Mm-hmm. And he says, by self-report, one year after winning multiple millions of dollars in the lottery and one year after becoming paraplegic, these two groups of people report from their own life experience the very same level of happiness. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Now, you don't see how that reinforces the direct observation that we create our experience of life and that the outside events are not what is making us happy or sad, then you're you're just actively refusing to see it. Mm-hmm. There's a book that I used to recommend to my patients and it was titled Happy for No Reason. And this woman decided to put the notice out to her friends and contacts that she wants to interview, 
she wants to meet and interview the happiest person or people that you know. And so she had many, many, many people send in, oh, you've got to meet so-and-so, they're so happy, they are always have a great attitude, etc. And so she, for her book, she ended up interviewing over a 100 of these people. And to a person, the people that were referred to her as the happiest people that these other people know did not have a life of bliss. They weren't born into millions of dollars and they weren't, you know, living the high life all the time and super lucky. And and the, the one story that I remember quite vividly was in the beginning of the book. There was a young woman who was a nurse, and I'm, I'm imagining she was in her late 20s, maybe early 30s, prime of her life kind of thing, married and happy, loving her work as a nurse. And on the way home from working a shift at the hospital one day she stopped at the drugstore and bought some eye drops like Visine or whatever brand of eye drops because she had worked long hours and her eyes were itchy or whatever and when she used those eye drops they had been tampered with and they made her permanently blind wow now remember I'm only learning about this woman because many people who know her experience her as one of the happiest people they've ever met. So how do you go from having blindness forced upon you in the prime of your life to being one of the happiest people most anybody knows? You choose to be happy, even though people looking on the outside would say, there's no reason for you to be happy. There's every reason for you to be in rage and bitterness and depression and suicidal and, you know, your life, quote, your life has been stole, stolen from you, close quotes. Mm-hmm. And this book is about a series of people that she interviewed. I think she might have taken 10 or more people out of the 100 or so that interviews that she did. And it just, story after story about people who are making the choice to be happy and blissful, despite the fact that many upsetting um, things, many things have happened that, that have caused them to change their life course and make major adjustments and deal with pain and suffering and loss, and yet they've chosen to be happy in spite of it. What is the and title of that the title of the book is Happy for No Reason. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful book. I hope it's and, so and, in print. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. And she talks yes. in it about research, about, you know, happiness practices and gratitude journals and, you know, meditation and things like that. So she tries to give people um, what she's learned from all of these people as some of the best tools for Increasing your happiness quotient. Uh huh. Okay. Excellent. Well, that's an, a terrific example of the old proverb making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's basically what that means. You take these sour things and you, you create what you want out of them. I'd make lemon pie myself, but 
<laughs> lemon meringue or or, or lemon and, cream? Uh, lemon cream. <laughs> yeah, not too much into the meringue. But, uh, yeah, that's a great, that sounds like a great book to give to myself, first of all, and then to others who are having a hard time with with the blaming. Um, yeah, of, the, the author's um, name. The author's name is Marcy Shimoff, M-A-R-C-I-S-H-I-M-O-F-F. And and she doesn't just have that. She's also got a workbook. And... Mm-hmm. Um, spell the last name again, S-H-I. S-H-I-M-O-F-F, Shimoff. Super. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yes. Responsibility for our own lives. How about that? Yep. <laughs> it's, um, yep. It's, yeah, it's a radical idea, but it's one that we promote on a regular basis. I know, I know. And it's one that we've been carefully trained to think that we have no, no ability to control. I mean, from, from early on at least in my generation. So I appreciate this program and, and Dr. Michael Rice's program for helping guide us into assuming our own power in regard to our own happiness. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you're um, finding it useful. I'm sure he is too. I'd like to remind us all that uh, this is the day that they're having the memorial service for Jeannie's father. So any extra thoughts and prayers and healing and loving energy you want to send their way would be appreciated. That brings us very close to the end of our first hour, and I will start the Why Again workshop hour number one that she asked me to play because it runs a little long. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. What exists is energy in form. And relative to this integrated energy system that we call a body-mind unit, there are two qualities. There's integrative energy, that which is over on the left side of the board, and disintegrative energy, that which is over here on the right side of the board. Now, we've had the experience over the last two years our granddaughter came into the world just a little over two years ago. And, you know, it was this little baby, little structure. And you know something? She doesn't look like that at all today, two years later. And she doesn't look at all like she looked at, like she looked at a month or two months or three months or four months or five or six or 10 or 20. And, and what you have to conclude, if you get out of the, the dullness of, incapacitated perception, what you notice is this form is a piece of plastic. It's in a state of becoming. And it becomes according to the energetic patterns in which we engage. If we engage in these things on the right side of the board, hostility and fear, grief, rage, anger, sadness, jealousy, revenge, then we're continuously putting into the cells that are storing that particular energy, and my offering is that every cell in your structure functions as a brain cell, functions to store information, 
And so we're literally changing the plastic nature of every cell and overall the whole structure of this thing we call a body-mind unit. And we're laying that on top of, you know, we, we can't just step in, or at least normally, I think we get to a level of power where we might be able to, but we don't just step in and, and make an instant change in a, a whole structure. Why? There are a thousand generations of that mind energy becoming flesh within each of our structures. You know, we don't have to direct its becoming, it's happening. But as we grow in awareness and choose to engage in energetic patterns, we start to direct its becoming. This side of the board, we direct it into the disease process. This side of the board, we direct it into health and wholeness and higher states of being. And if we lived on a planet where seven and a half people woke up every morning, seven and a half billion people, pardon me, woke up every morning realizing that this is who they are, how different would our creative process be? If we didn't have people playing these games, if we weren't playing these games, how different would this piece of plastic look for each of us? What would it be capable of? And as I say, when we engage in that mind energy and it lands on the cell, that mind energy, when it's of a disintegrative nature, the cell says, ouch, it informs us that the quality of our creative process is off base. But what do we do? Well, what our culture has taught most of us to do is blame somebody else for that. Have you ever said this to somebody? You made me really mad. You hurt me. You, you, you really have a problem. You ever said that to somebody? And the question I like to ask is, if they're the one with the problem, why are you the one with the pain? That doesn't make any sense. If they're the one with the problem, they'd be the one with the pain. But if you're in pain and you think somebody else has got a problem, you've got a problem. Now, we have a definition for the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of you is causing what's happening inside of you. And that's called denial. So denial is the act of thinking or speaking as though something outside of us is causing something inside of us to happen. Now, something outside of us can cause something that's inside of us to move or intensify in its movement, but it can't cause that energy to be there. It has to be there in the first place. But when we live in this game of denial, you know, whenever I feel this way, I talk about them or somebody or anybody, what happens is that in order to pretend that my feelings aren't coming from the interaction of my mind energy and my cells, I have to hide that whole process from myself. I literally have to dissociate from that process. And I have to hallucinate, I have to generate a worldview, a perceptual construct that tells me that the problem is really out there. And, of course, one of my favorite tongue-in-cheek lines, which many of you have used many times, is, if you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, how is it that you're the only one that was there every time? Sooner or later, we have to acknowledge that we're engaged in our own lives. But if we spend our whole lives in denial, 
you made me mad, you made me sad, you made me angry, you hurt me, that upset me, they disturbed me, then we have a device called a mind that continuously constructs the world we see as though that was true. And what that means is that the real cause of what we're experiencing, we have to dissociate from. And if you were involved in this work back in the early days, you'll remember that I used to write on the board, deny, suppress. And then, and it totally changed the work when I was given this instruction. I mean, I had specific instructions that were given internally from Roka that said, Michael, no, it's not suppress. It's not merely hiding something from yourself. It's locking it away and throwing away the key. Once you're in an arena where you're in denial, you made me mad, your mad is no longer yours to change. So guess what? You now have a life sentence of mad. Anybody and everybody that will, can trigger that into activity can seem to make you mad. Why can they make you mad? Because mad is there. And if mad is there, it's an energy. And if you pushed it down a thousand times, there's a very intense high energy wave radiating out from you that says to all the world on an energetic level, hey world, is there anybody that knows how to make me mad? Have you ever noticed there's never a shortage of volunteers? Why is that? Because life abhors you being diseased. Life doesn't want you dead. So life has been structured, it seems, so that if you are holding to a dis-ease energy and you've dissociated from it, someone's going to show up, and that happens through the law of presence. Someone is going to receive the energetic invitation to come to your life and do to you exactly what you never wanted to have done. And if you tell them what's wrong with them and you get rid of them and you go away and you take the geographic cure, you'll find somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. I feel so blessed the universe reserved the title of my book for me. Why is this happening to me again? Because virtually everybody in the universe has asked the question. And, you know, probably the greatest atrocity done to us as human beings down through the ages and that we've bought into is that we've had hidden from us the fact that we are by nature creators. Nobody told us that. They told us all kinds of crazy things, but they didn't tell us that through the energetic patterns we engage in, we create our own cellular health and diseases. We create everything that shows up. We literally create the way this piece of plastic called the body-mind unit unfolds and becomes either toward disease or toward health. It depends on what the predominant resonant energy is in your structure. So for people who live in this state of denial, this state where it's all everybody else's fault, they hold all of these causes within themselves, but they press those causes down, hide them from themselves, and by so doing, intensify them every time they have to press it down, and therefore send out a signal that gets even stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, imagine that I've got a, a three-foot diameter spring it sits here on the floor and it stands three feet high. Can that spring do anything sitting there on the floor? Not at all. But what happens if I push down on it and lock it? And I push down on it and lock it. 
and I push down on it and lock it. What happens after years of doing that and I let the lock off? A lot of power stored in the spring. If I've been spending years and years and years telling everybody else why they're the problem in my life, I'm pushing down that energy, adding energy and information to it, and by so doing, I'm setting up a literally an attractive energy field that will resonate or pull somebody into my life to do it to me again. So when I live life that way, when that's the game that I play, the things that I most don't want to deal with are literally stored in brain cells. When I talk about building brain cells in this work, I'm not talking about building new physical structure. I'm talking about the fact that every cell in the structure is designed to store information, literally to store frequencies. So every cell can hold energetic patterns and therefore function as a brain cell. When there are certain brain cells that I don't want to deal with, things that I'm in denial about, I push those things down and hide them. I intensify them. And by so doing, I set up a high-energy wave. Now, I didn't know at the time how important a piece of information this was going to be way back, and this goes back probably 35 or 36 years ago. I used to keynote at a conference called Global Science out in Colorado. And one year, a gentleman named Marcel Vogel came to the conference. Marcel uh, was a 23-year senior scientist from IBM. He was the only non-degreed scientist that IBM ever had on their payroll. And the reason he was non-degreed was because he was self-educated and nobody could teach him anything. At the age of 11, Marcel invented chemical light. You know, you go to a football game and they've got these light sticks and you break the glass tubes inside the plastic and the chemicals mix and they light up. Well, that was Marcel's invention. He invented that 11. His family didn't have the money. Marcel patented it himself. If your computer works, guess why? Marcel invented the magnetic coating on the plates of your hard drive that allows your hard drive to store information. That's the kind of mind that Marcel had. And what he did this particular year is he brought a thing called a Delaware camera. It was created by a man out of England named George Delaware. This camera is a little different than your average camera. Normally, you click the shutter, the aperture opens, light energy comes in, it's registered on the photographic plate, you develop it, you've got a picture. Not so with the Delaware camera. In between the aperture and the photographic plate, there's a tuning mechanism. So you can literally tune the camera, somewhat like a TV set or a radio, as to what frequencies it receives. And so what Marcel was able to do with this camera was he was able to attune it to the frequency of waves that leave the mind when we think of thought. And what Marcel was able to do was to take pictures of the high energy waves that leave the mind when we think a thought. So whatever we're holding in the way of mind energy within our structures from our own lives or from our genes, we're literally sending out a composite of frequencies continuously. And because the universe is governed by the law of resonance, now, the law of resonance simply stated says this, 
when two energy systems are in tune or in harmony with each other, there's an interchange of energy between them when one system is amplified above the other. You probably remember from physics class in high school. You took a middle C tuning fork, you hit it on a desk, and you put it in front of a second middle C tuning fork. The second middle C tuning fork was not moving. But when you put the first energized tuning fork in front of it, the second tuning fork started to move. It's called resonance, transfer of information. So notice that this tuning fork is moving, and through resonance, that one starts to move. Resonance creates motion. You might think about a, uh, let's imagine you've got a baby grand piano, and you have two of them, and you open the top of the two baby grand pianos. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds of keys in each piano. But if I go over to one of those pianos, and I hit the middle C, and I go look into the second piano, there are going to be a bunch of strings vibrating in that second piano. Guess which ones? Only the ones that are keyed to middle C are going to be moving in that second piano. So resonance creates motion. Now, in the human realm, my offering is, resonance adds another piece to the puzzle. And that is, resonance creates motion toward. So, you know, I hit middle C on this piano. The other piano isn't going to get up and crawl up on top of it. It's not going to create motion toward. But in the human realm, when I set up a frequency, those who are in resonance with that frequency are going to tend to be drawn into my space. And if there's something that I have denied and dissociated from a thousand times, and it's deeply hidden away in the darkest recesses of my mind, I don't even know it's there. But having pushed it down a thousand times, it's got a pretty powerful wave coming out of it. Now, if this person has the matching bag of garbage, if this person has the brain cells and the behaviors that match what I've denied and dissociated from, unless they are very conscious, they will tend to be directed by that energy wave. That energy wave will resonate these brain cells in them those brain cells will fire, constitute their, what they would call their conscious thought and behavior, and they're going to tend to do a behavior toward us. Guess what the behavior's likely going to be? Let's see if that's true. Has anybody ever gone into somebody's space totally committed to being loving, nurturing, and caring, nurturing and, caring and all of a sudden found yourself functioning like a mad banshee? What happened? Well, here's my offering. You went in totally committed to being loving and nurturing and caring, but their high energy wave set something else in motion in you. It resonated your mad banshee. And when your mad banshee started to move, that took over your behavior, and there you were doing it to them again. That's how the why is this happening to me again principle occurs. And guess what? Even if you didn't do it, they're going to see you do it. Michael, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, yeah, it does when you know how the mind operates, because here's what's going to happen. When they do that behavior, when they bounce off of that high energy wave in you and do that behavior, they're going to resonate those very brain cells that you've denied and dissociated from. When those brain cells start to fire, they're going to create a perceptual construct 
that will be projected from those brain cells, and you're going to show up in their mind. Literally, they will see a body that they call you in their mind with and made up of the threads of energy of what you've denied and dissociated from. So they're going to show up in your mind with your problem attached. You're going to see that it's their problem. It's going to be really clear to you. But then notice you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, and you're the only one that was there every time. This is an internal process that comes about as a result of denial and dissociation. So what happens when we deny and dissociate, this is the energetic pattern that occurs. And then when those brain cells fire, and, and we live in a culture, you know, psychology tends to tell us that projection is taking something that's inside of you and putting it outside of you. That's not projection. That's externalization. Projection is when I take brain cells I've denied and dissociated from, and I generate perception out of it. I generate the picture world that I see. Now, it's interesting, and of course, we've been teaching this for decades, but a couple of years ago, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago now, we came across some research that was done by the CIA. If you go to CIA.gov, you can download a book. God knows how many taxpayer dollars they spent on it. It was called The Study of Human Intelligence. And there's a, a chapter in it on perception. They're studying how perception works. And here's their bottom line conclusion. You can go to the CIA website and download this book free. What it says is, the mind does not record reality. The mind generates reality. This perceptual world, the world that you see is a generated world. And as a generated world, it is a construct of your mind. And until you interrupt what's at the root of the way your mind constructs the world that you see, you will tend to be stuck in this pattern of denial, dissociation, and then projection. Now, our culture tells us that we have a pair of windows that we all get to look out of and see what's going on in the world. That is probably the biggest lie you've ever been told. You do not have a set of windows that look out into the world. It's not possible. You have an antenna. It's called the eye. It's a frequency receiving device. It receives frequencies based in light energy. Light energy enters the eye. And through the law of resonance, the information that comes in through the eye resonates brain cells. And brain cells generate perception, the world you see. You can't look out through this antenna. All the eye is, as the other senses are, are simply frequency receivers. They're just receivers of energy. And whatever energy you have brain cells for, whatever brain cells that resonates in you, the brain, the mind, distinguished between those two because the mind functions through every cell in the body, the mind generates this perception. 
And it's interesting, there's some Harvard research that says that in a, a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is, there are 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity going on within this structure, in that time frame, which is about a 25th of a second, the max amount of data that goes into building your perceptual world is nine bits. That's it. You get to see nine bits out of 10,000 brain cells firing. And it's been estimated that the actuality of the world perhaps contains as much as 20 trillion bits in that same time frame. So we're looking at a tiny, tiny fragment of what's actually happening in the world and a tiny fragment of what's going on within our minds. Now, when you get down to that, what you call this sort of a device is an evidential device. When you're only looking at nine bits of data out of 10,000 brain cells firing, you're looking at evidence. There are no facts there. There is only evidence. And there's a device or there's a, a function in the mind called a bias. And, you know, in, in electronics, if you've got a, let's say you want to, you've got a transistor and that transistor is designed to pass a certain frequency. You have to apply a voltage to it that allows that to pass. Well, it's pretty much the same here. You have to apply a, a, a willingness to have certain evidence present itself. And so that bias that is, is what's contained in literally our whole generational pattern. And as a result, the only evidence we ever get to see is evidence of our own BS. And of course, that's belief system. Anybody else have a different reality for those initials? If you have a different reality for those initials, I'll invite you to notice that's your reality. It's not mine. It's a belief system. I've had people who got you know, upset with me for writing the initials BS on the board. And, and notice that they weren't upset because of my meaning, my reality, my perceptual construct for BS, belief system. They were upset and disturbed by a perceptual construct in their minds for those initials. Yeah. All upset is internal. You can't be upset unless you have an upsetting energy within yourself. And if you live in denial, they upset me, then dissociating from that upset, you will project it into your brain image of someone else. And, you know, an endless procession of people will show up being the problem in your life. But you're the only one that was there every time. And when you understand that, these eyes don't see out there, but the world you see is generated from the firing of brain cells within you. Dr. Tim introduced a, uh, a video by a gentleman, and take a look on, you know, can, you can go to YouTube and, and search for Anil Seth, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H. And he does a beautiful presentation where he informs us that the brain doesn't see light and the brain doesn't hear sounds. No such thing happens. The brain, the perceptual system, is constantly making its best guess about what's going on out there. When you realize that's how your perceptual system works, then, and you realize that perception has a quality, you've got to have a standard by which to measure the perceptions you're going to accept and the ones you aren't. 
there is a sign within your structure that will tell you 100% of the time when your perception is off base. And that is, is your perception fueled by either hostility or fear? Ever asked earlier, did anybody ever accuse you of doing something you've never done or saying something you've never said? You know, most everybody in a, an audience will raise their hand and, you know, kind of a laugh. Yeah, I sure have. Take a moment and think about any time in your life where somebody's done that kind of accusation and they were not correct. What state of mind were they in when they accused you of saying something you never said and doing something you never did, even though they swear they saw you do it? Guarantee. It's always hostility and fear. Now, probably that makes sense to you when you're looking at other people, but notice that you still have a tendency to trust your mind when it's doing hostility and fear. Hostility and fear are indicators that the mind is using corrupt data to build the world that you see. If you come from generations and generations and generations of hostility and fear-based perception, then it seems like that's the only thing possible is perceptions based in that. But the mind does not record reality. The mind generates reality. If your mind is generating your reality out of hostility or fear, and remember, this is reality. The perceptual output of the mind is your reality. And what's going on in the world, this 20 trillion bit world, is actuality. When you can let the actuality come in and teach you, well, what are you going to have to do to be able to do that? You're going to have to make a space for it to happen. You're going to have to collapse this projection. <clears throat> Guess what forgiveness does? Is forgiveness about letting other people off the hook because pain or trauma is moving in you? Forget it. Never forgive anybody for anything. And many people say, oh, yeah, that's right. I have to forgive myself. Never forgive yourself for anything because you can't. It's not possible. What the Greeks taught us was to let other people off the hook. They taught us pardoning in place of forgiveness and totally bastardized the idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the tool with which you collapse perceptions based in hostility and fear, and you leave a clean and open space within your mind for something based in active love to come forward. And when that happens, then what enters into and what fuels the human mind is this state of being that we are designed to function out of. And this physiological device becomes a home where love is incarnated and embodied, and it fuels absolutely everything. So the key tool that's needed, if you recognize that your life has any given arenas, you know, it might be in the arena of relationships or money or, or business or work or employers, employees, whatever arena it's in, if you find yourself, your mind producing hostility and fear, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to weaken those frequencies 
of hostility and fear until they can no longer take over your perceptual system. Now, each of us has an innate tendency to perceive life in a certain way. That's because we have generational patterns. Remember we talked about there's integrative energy, there's disintegrative energy. Interesting, in the Aramaic language, the word that describes disintegrative energy is sin. It's an interesting word in Aramaic. The word sin has nothing to do with some terrible, awful thing that you've done. The word sin in Aramaic is actually an archery term. When you picked up the bow and arrow and you fired at the bullseye and you missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper yelled sin. All it means is you're off the mark. That's all it means. And if I put an energy that's off the mark, some form of hostility or fear, into a cell, I begin the degradation of that cell. Now let's go back to the Aramaic way where they informed us the wages of sin is death. Now I can remember being a kid and thinking, oh, God's going to get me for my sins. That's what I was what I was thought. You're going to be punished for your sin. And here we live on the punishment planet. How common is that belief? What if, what if we lived on a work planet where seven and a half billion people could not even conceive of punishment, let alone reach out in punishment? What if we had seven and a half people who simply functioned as love and punishment never entered their awareness in any way, shape, or form? How different would our world be? I'm offering a worldview that that's possible and that's where we want to go with this work. So when they say the wages of sin is death, all they were saying is, if you put disintegrative energy on top of disintegrative energy on top of, on top of, on top of, you're going to die. Your structure isn't going to be able to carry that burden. Literally, mind energy becoming flesh. That chemistry that we call it, that lands inside the cell, is going to create deterioration of the cell. You get enough cells deteriorating, you get an organ system failing. You get enough organ systems failing, and you die. Life can't be supported in a system that is filled with sin. And it's got no connotation of you know, evil, bad, wrong, nasty. It's just what quality of energy are you engaging in? And then you remember they said, the sins of the fathers will be passed, yea, unto three and four generations. This is straight out of scripture. And guess what? It's got nothing to do with religion. It's just the way the system works. It's interesting. I, I came across this morning some emails from a friend from several years ago, and I'd sent him some of the material in the Beatitudes and the, uh, the Kabor's manuscript, and he passed it on to a business a friend of his, business acquaintance. And I just read it this morning, and, and this fellow was Jewish, and he was putting forward some of Yeshua's ideas in Aramaic, these kinds of ideas. And <laughs> this guy... <clears throat> This executive from the company he was working with uh, sent back. He says, what, you and you are talking about Jesus? I'm going to have to sit down and have a few shots of tequila before I read this. Because our world's been brainwashed that this is about religion. And that's just another scam. 
to keep people separated and finding somebody else at fault and not living as their true nature. What this man said is, this is what causes you to die. And you have generations of that in there. Who told you that literally, I mean, you go back four generations, and that's 31 lives. Who told you that you have every thought, every feeling, every reality structured within your structure of the previous 30 people in your generations? Did anybody tell you that? The thoughts, the feelings, the attitudes, the perceptual constructs of mom and dad? And mom and dad's mom and dad? And their moms, did anybody tell you that? This book called Scripture is not about theology. Here's where it's about genetics. It's about physics. It's about physiology. It's about psychology. It's about how this energy system called life works. But the Greeks didn't want us to know that. You'll notice the Greeks, you know, they had these gods that raped their own mothers, murdered their own children. Pretty heavy-duty group of folks. So through that filter came this insane interpretation of something was just meant to help you to determine how to live your life. So if you've got generations of energies that are off the mark in there, you're in trouble. And of course, you think about three to four generations and where did the previous fourth, the fourth generation back get their thoughts, their feelings, their realities, but from the previous generation and the previous. And so what this work ultimately is inviting you to do. And, and I'll say that having developed this and worked with this for almost 50 years now, when people are first introduced to this, they get it on a certain level. But it isn't until people work with it for five to 10 years that they really grasp what it's about, what it really means. And what we're inviting each of you to do is to develop a skill unheard of in our culture. And that is the skill of being able to delve inside of your own energy system, to learn to collapse projections of untoward energies, move into and literally decode what's in the cell. Literally, that mind energy comes in, lands on a receptor site, is integrated in the cell. The skill is to pull that out of the cell and throw it away. That's forgiveness. And to be able to literally develop the skill to go down to the point where you literally are sensitive enough to the energies contained within your structure that you can go back into the generational patterns and pull the neuropeptides out of the genes that create that pattern, that create this inclination that's activated in certain ways in your life. So we're inviting you to develop a set of skills. And it doesn't happen on day one or day two or day 10 or day 20. And I have people like, you know, oh, I got five bucks in five minutes. Tell me everything you know, Michael. No, that's not how it works. I use an example of that, and, and, and I say this by way of hopefully inspiring you to really take. I'm, I'm suggesting you do at least two worksheets a day in each assignment as they come as we go through this intensive. And, and if you do, through the period of the 14 weeks, you'll integrate it into your life as a habit, and it will become yours for life. That's one of the benefits of doing this intensive this way as opposed to people coming to Heartland for 16 days and, uh, and 
doing it all, but then taking it back to their lives and trying to integrate it into their daily lives. It's a challenge. But ultimately what we're inviting you to do is to develop the skills of being able to go into the deepest parts of your structure, access what's there and what doesn't belong to literally be able to throw it away, to remove it. And what does that look like? What are we capable of? And I, I use an example. Michael J., my son, is a computer nerd. And when he was about 15, he decided he wanted to learn about computers. And I had a student friend in Kansas City who uh, was a former NASA computer scientist. And he's someone that I've worked with for several years. He, he'd done my work. And, and we, were just, we just became buds over the years. And so I called Graham and I said, hey, Michael J. wants to learn about computers. And I know you've got a computer school aside from about four computer businesses. Can Michael come and work with you? He said, sure. And, and Michael J., of course, was raised at Heartland. And thank you to Fran Tyner, because Fran was this the first two or three years that we were at Heartland. And Michael J. was, you know, I guess he was about eight or nine. And he became Fran's tail. He went everywhere Fran went. And Fran just had this ability to do anything with his hands. So Michael learned that skill from him. And so he ended up going and living at, uh, at Graham's, in Graham's home and doing kind of an exchange with him for room and board while he was going to school and studying computers. Actually, over a period of a couple of years, when, uh, when Michael J.'s stereo system left the house, we knew he'd gone to Kansas City, and that was it. But I tell the story because uh, there was a point where I had bought a new computer. And when I got that computer up and running, got it online, you know, this is back when you pushed the button, it went beep, 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 all these tones, and you got this crawling thing that happened. Well, it didn't, it didn't work properly. So I called the company, and I don't know, I spent two, three, four, five hours on, on with technical support. They couldn't get the computer working. So they said, well, pack it up and send it back to us. We'll fix it. So I packed it up, sent it back to them. Two weeks later, I got the computer back. It's ostensibly fixed. I plug it in. Same problem. Exact same thing. So I got on the phone with the computer with tech support again, go through the whole routine. They can't get it working. So I don't bug Graham because he's a really busy guy. He's got three or four businesses. And so... I picked up the phone, I called and said, Graham, I apologize for bugging you, but I got a problem. Can you help me? And so I explained what had happened, and, you know, I sent the computer back, and they couldn't fix it, and, you know, what do I do? It's a brand-new computer. He says, okay, well, go to a C-prompt. At that point, I was a little bit ignorant of computers. I said, what's a C-prompt? And, uh, and I followed his directions. He said, well, put in a string of letters and hit a return. So I put in a string of letters, hit a return. Read to me what it says. And I read it to him. And... And he says, okay, type in this string of characters and hit a return. Read from what it says. So I put that in, hit a return, and I read it to him. He says, okay, your computer's fixed. What? Your computer's fixed. Oh, now, come on, Graham. I mean, I sent it back to them. We've spent hours on the phone. Michael, your computer is fixed. Guess what? My computer was fixed. Now, the company that built the system couldn't troubleshoot what Graham did literally in three minutes on the phone. That's called having brain cells for something. Are there challenges in your life? Are there hostilities and fears that you can't seem to overcome? Are there disorders and diseases that just don't seem resolvable? Well, as I said, five to ten years of engaging. And people say, well, that's a long time. I don't know if I want to. Well, what else is there to do? There is no other path to this end result 
to doing your work. You know, in the ancient times, they wanted an instant fix too. Well, five bucks, five minutes. What did they say? You can't strong the gates. The gates. You can't do it. It takes doing your work. You have this body-mind unit. There are generations and generations and generations of untoward energies in there. And you've just got to clean it up. Now, I've spent the last half century studying how to do that, how it works, what that all means. And this is my end result. It's actually the thing that inspired me to take it to the next level. My son just turned 40 was his birth. And when he came into the world, it was just like so awesome and delivered him, caught him with my hands. And it was just so amazing. And then I looked at the world at that time, and it's like, well, if somebody doesn't do something, there isn't going to be a world for this little one to grow up in. And this is what I did. And so I invite you to be on the team and be part of the process and key into how this process of healing works, what it really means. And the core of the forgiveness process, we're not actually going to get into doing the worksheet tonight, but we're going to get into what the core of the forgiveness process is. And from there, you can tap into and, you know, you can go to our website or, pardon me, to your, uh, your phone's app store and just type in the words Heartland, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, one word, Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C, forgiveness. And you'll be looking at the world's, as far as I know, only forgiveness app. You can do the worksheet. There are two different versions of it on that, on your phone now, once you download that. And or you can go to whyagain.org. And in the upper left-hand corner of the page, it says start here, click that button. It'll walk you through literally 50 years of what it took to understand how this process of forgiveness works. And what I'm going to explain to you right now, I didn't understand until I had worked with this for about 35 years. It took that to decode from the Aramaic and come to understand all of the aspects of how this comes together, the physiology, the physics, the psychology, the genetics of it, and how it all works. Suffice to say, in its shortest form at this moment, perception is the output of your mind. It's made of nine bits of data. If your perception is fueled by any form of hostility or fear, you have a problem because you are suffering from degraded perception. And your life will never go the way you want it to go while your perception is degraded. Underlying degraded perception is generations and generations and generations, pardon me, are generations of unresolved hostility and fear. The thing that drives this whole process, and, and you'll notice in your life in general, I mean, unless you're just a, a, a naturally nasty person, excuse me. If your persona is that degraded that you're a naturally nasty person, you'll notice that as long as everybody's doing what you want them to do, you're a pretty happy camper. But when someone, yourself or someone else, is not fulfilling a goal that you hold for them, that's when you go into hostility and fear, degraded perception, and untoward behavior. Why? Why? Well, how does all that work? Well, here's what happens. 
Obviously, if there are 10,000 brain cells firing, and this is the most quoted piece of psychological research, and was done back in the 60s, if I remember correctly, this is the most quoted piece of research in, in psychological history. Nine bits of data, 10,000 brain cells fired. Now, there's other research that's come up since then that says, no, it's 13, it's 12, it doesn't matter. The point is, we get to see a little tiny fragment of what's really going on within us. And obviously, something has to determine which nine bits of data your mind is going to use to build your perception. Something has to make that determination. What is it? The driver for that whole process is your goals. When you load a goal in the mind through resonance, everything associated with the frequency of that goal. Remember, everything is frequency. You know, I actually don't speak words. I've never spoken a word in my life, and neither of you. We call it words, but actually, I have a little flap of skin in my throat, and I know how to blow air over it so that it creates these things that we call words. But what's really happening is this air moving out causes air molecules to move. The air molecules moving cause a little drum inside of your ear to move, and that drum moving sets up an electrical frequency, and nothing is communicated by that except frequency. No light, no sound, no nothing goes in there or here. What goes in is frequency. And then that frequency causes brain cells to fire. And now your whole history, including your whole genetic history through the last thousand generations, is set into activity through the law of resonance. Whatever that goal resonates in you is going to be the information that is recruited by that goal to produce the perception, which includes your attitudes and your behaviors. If you don't like the behavior that you're doing, you know, we hear about the alcoholic that got drunk and did crazy stuff. And the next morning when they wake up, they are so repentant. Oh, that's so terrible. I will never do that again. And they really mean they're never going to do it again. But guess what? Next time they get drunk, they'll do it again. Remember we talked about inhibitors earlier? What's the first thing that happens with alcohol? Excessive amounts of alcohol knock out inhibitors. And now all the generational patterns that were never allowed, they were always shut down, they were always inhibited, will come into play and people do crazy stuff. And much as they feel sorry the next morning and swear they're never going to do it, unless they go in and clean up these generational patterns, they're going to do it the next time the circumstance warrants it. Warrants it. And so goals are the driver for this process of billions of bits of information moving in the world, billions of bits moving in us, and nine bits end up producing the world we experience, the thoughts we think, the feelings we feel, and the energy we engage in. And this process is designed to be fueled by active present love. That's the power supply that it's designed to work with. Now, does anybody have a, a device in your home, your office, your shop, your car, your business that works really well when you unplug it? No. Human perception is designed to be fueled by human life. It's designed to be fueled 
by active present love. If your perception is fueled by hostility or fear, then you're not even human. Just because one has a human form does not mean they are human. Remember holding the newborn? Go back and hold that newborn child. Notice when you hold the newborn what serenity, what peace, what sweetness, what the presence of love is like. Then ask yourself a question. Is the newborn loving me or is the newborn love? My offering is the newborn is the active presence of love. And so are you. If the active presence of love isn't active in your physiology, then there's no human life because it is love that is human life. Remember Yeshua said, I come to bring you life? You look at his whole body of work and the whole thing is about how do you get rid of the hostility or fear and how do you fuel your mind by the active presence of love? Now, it's a two-part process. One part of the process is the dissolution of the generational patterns that do not belong. That's called forgiveness. Forget about ever forgiving anybody ever again. And, and it, it always amazes me because I've had people who have been around my work 10, 15, 20 years, and they'll still talk about how well I forgave them. Stop. Never forgive anybody for anything. If you choose to pardon someone, you know, they did something crazy, and you go, I can let that go. I'm going to let it go. I'll pardon you. I'll let you off the hook for that. That's done. But if you call that forgiveness, you won't actually do the next level, which is go inside yourself and remove and clean up the untoward energies that never belong within a human structure. So forgiveness is about the removal of what never belonged. That's half of the process. And the other half of the process is the integration of active love into every cell. To literally create a space in this form where love actively shows up in physiology. Now, the short form of the forgiveness process, and again, please use the radio show, ask questions. The short form of the forgiveness process is the word forgive in Aramaic is shebag, and it literally translates from Aramaic to cancel. Now, what is it that I cancel? Do I cancel you? Well, that's murder. Probably not going to Do I cancel myself? Well, no, that's suicide. Let's let that one go. But what in every circumstance where I have upset or disturbance going on, that means there's an untoward energy moving in my physiology. If I'm going to come out of my denial, what is it that I can cancel to change that whole process? When I cancel my goal, the perception generated as a result of that goal collapses. When it collapses, I now have a clean and open space within my mind where these underlying energies can surface. Because when I cancel the goal and collapse the perception, what happens is a pathway is open into the unconscious or the dissociated content. And what I've dissociated from, depending on my level of willingness, what I've dissociated from will start to come upward to awareness. Now, 
When I say awareness, it might just be awareness of the energy moving. And it might be specific memories of things that have happened. It's not necessary to go back and remember each dark, dirty, nasty thing that happened in your life. And it's not about laying on the couch and, you know, examining what happened for 30 years until you find that thing. It's about living in and as the active presence of love, making a commitment to that. And as you walk through life, the next piece of work you're ready to do, resonance will bring somebody to you that will resonate what you need to deal with. If you keep it it hidden, then you'll only get this surface projection and you'll think it's somebody else. When you cancel the goal, you collapse that perception. It took me 35 years to learn this piece of information. And I, and I understand why the Greeks turned it into bargaining, letting other people off the hook. I understand it fully, because until you've got all these pieces, you know the physics, you know the physiology, you know the high energy, until you put all those pieces together, canceling a perfectly good goal does not make any sense at all. Gee, I just want that person to cherish me. And they're raging at me. Why would I cancel my need to be cherished? Because I'm in terror? Oh, so my physiology is producing terror because I want to be cherished. Oh. So, Michael, what you're saying is what, what you now understand about me is that in my file on being cherished, there's terror. Oh, okay, I see. So if I cancel my goal for them to cherish me, my projection on them collapses, and it opens a pathway into all this terror that's stored within my brain cell structure and maybe the terror that's stored from 30 generations ago that needs to be unwound. Oh, now I'm starting to see what forgiveness is as I cancel the goal. Now, I have a 9-bit processor, who we're going to call it for the sake of whatever term we're going to use. If I've got something that's been going on in my bloodline for 25 or 200 generations, and I can process nine bits at a time, what chance do I have? It's impossible. I mean, it's silly to even try. Fortunately, this man, Yeshua, understood another major piece of information. And that was that at creation, there was a power put in us that in Aramaic was called Ruka de Kudsha. The Greeks translated these words as the Holy Spirit. It's nothing about a disembodied spirit being in the term Ruka de Kudsha in Aramaic. In Aramaic, those terms speak of a feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. So when I become willing enough I will literally, I mean, one of my best examples for, I don't know, 35 years or more. If you were in my workshop 35 years, or well, 15 years ago, these weren't the words at the top of the board. This word was suppressed. Literally, as I'm sitting and I'm making some changes to the worksheet, the one you see on the, the website now or in the app is probably at least version 3020 was sitting doing some work with it, and literally I'm told inside my head, Michael, it's not suppression. That's not clear enough. It's dissociation. What do you mean dissociation? 
It's not just that you've hidden it away. It's that it's no longer yours. It's gone. You can't change it. When you understand that denial, thinking or speaking as though something outside of you is the cause of this that's in you, then you have to, to believe that, hide the real process that's happening inside of you. This genius Yeshua, genius, I mean, how did he come up with this? I don't know, but here's what he showed us. Cancel the goal. Collapse the perception. Perception drops in on its root. You've now got access to the hidden part of your mind. Bring it forward in the presence of love, and then there's a super processor that is available to you. In Aramaic, it was called Ruka Dekutsha. She, a feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effects of our errors and teaches us the truth. So at the point where I cancel the goal and collapse, I may open so much that I'm so overwhelmed. This is part of the whole flood idea. You know, I'm so overwhelmed. This is just so much to move. How do I do it? I connect with Ruka. What is Ruka? In the original Aramaic, they never said anything about God sending out his spirit. What it says is the creator sent out his breath. We have access to this phenomenal super processor called Ruka Dekutsha. She will, if you invite her to, undo the effects of your errors and teach you the truth. Now, if you've still got a use for one of your lives, well, I just want to keep this little bit of hostility back here so I need to protect myself, then she's not going to touch your hostility. It's yours. Hang out with it all you need, all you want. But when you're willing to surrender, when you're ready to really let it all go, she will process you right down to your genetic toast. 